RPC Radio. Radio. Hello and welcome to Money Covered, a podcast from RPC aimed at those dealing with complaints and claims in the financial services sector and risk managers within that sector. My name is Rachel Healy. I am one of the co-hosts on this podcast and we'll be talking to some guests about key developments in the financial services area over the last month. The podcast will discuss topical issues of relevance to those dealing with complaints and claims against FCA regulated entities, such as IFAs, asset managers, SIPs and brokers, TPR regulated entities, including pension trustees, as well as issues for offshore professionals and accountants. With a lot of ground to cover, I welcome our guests to the podcast today. Welcome to our two returning guests, Andrew Oberholzer and Shauna Giddens, on the podcast today, the 6th of April 2022, a day when the war in the Ukraine continues and the week in which we saw the death of EastEnders legend, Dr Cotton. We hung on a few days to record this podcast as we wanted to cover the FCA Section 404 Consumer Redress Scheme for members or former members of the British Steel Pension Scheme, which was published on the 31st of March. So today we will be covering that in a bit of detail. And we'll also cover the High Court's decision in McLean and Others v Andrew Thornhill QC, which is relevant to anyone involved with tax avoidance schemes and also more generally important to those involved in professional negligence claims generally um, in relation to establishing whether or not a duty of care is owed when it comes to a non-client. But before turning to Andrew and Shauna, the other hot topics for listeners over March 2022 included the High Court rejecting an application for permission for judicial review of various financial ombudsman service decisions involving the financial advisory firm Portal Financial Services with respect to their advice on final salary transfers. FOS also published its plans and budget for 2022-2023, including plans for access to 15 rather than 53 cases, so increasing the burden when it comes to fees for firms um, who have group account fee arrangements. There was also the announcement of increases to the FOS limit from 355,000 to 375,000 pounds for complaints about events occurring after the 1st of April 2019, with other complaints increasing the limit to 170,000. FOS complaints data was also released for the period October to December 2021, with SIP cases in particular increasing before the FOS by 73%, with an uphold rate at 52%. So this is going to be quite a bumper edition of the podcast, given our two topics. But first of all, we turn to the British Steel Pension Scheme and Andrew, with the consumer redress scheme hot off the press. So there's a lot going on with British Steel Pensions as March saw a host of developments. We had the National Audit Office report. We had, as I've mentioned a few times already, the consumer redress scheme consultation. We also had other British Steel Pension news, including 50,000 members set to receive a shared one-off payment of £58 million after the British Steel Pension Scheme 2 recorded a better-than-expected surplus in March 2021. We also had a DSCEO letter for those firms impacted in terms of 
those who gave advice on members transferring from the British Steel Pension Scheme. That letter warned firms to maintain adequate assets for the scheme and not to dispose of, withdraw, transfer or deal with assets, except in the ordinary course of business. But today we're going to focus on the National Audit Report and the Section 404 consultation. So before we kick off, Andrew, can you just give listeners a plotted history to what happened with British Steel Pensions and why it has attracted such keen government and regulator attention? Well, the British Steel Pension Scheme, or BSPS, was a large defined benefits or final salary pension scheme. And defined benefits scheme provides a guaranteed income to its members in retirement, based broadly on how many years they've been an active member of the scheme and their salary at retirement or sometimes an average of their salary across the time uh, and active members of the scheme. The scheme was sponsored by Tata Steel UK. Tata had experienced significant financial difficulties. As a result, in around March 2016, it announced that it would be examining options to restructure its business, and this would include the decoupling of the DB pension scheme from the company. Now, a company can apply to the pensions regulator for a regulated apportionment arrangement or an RAA if the result of continuing to sponsor the pension would result in its insolvency, which is what Tata did in this case. If an RAA is agreed, the scheme will ordinarily enter the Pension Protection Fund or the PPF. The PPF is a lifeboat for pension schemes where the employer enters insolvency. However, the government was keen to explore other measures to assist members of the scheme to allow for an improved option compared to the benefits they would have received from the PPF. The new plans would see Tata set up and sponsor a new scheme, which was BSPS2, which would offer reduced benefits to BSPS1 with less generous inflationary increases, but it was widely considered to be more beneficial than the PPF. So BSPS members were faced with a choice They could either do nothing, in which case their pension would automatically transfer to the PPF. They could agree to transfer their pension into BSPS2. Or alternatively, they could request a cash equivalent transfer value of their pension and transfer it into a personal pension. This whole exercise was known as the time to choose. And it resulted in members having to make a decision in a very brief period of time and before the final confirmation that BSPS2 was officially going to go ahead. Approximately 7,834 members chose to transfer their pensions into a private pension. The majority of those who transferred, around 95%, sought advice from independent financial advisors. Now, there's been significant press coverage concerning the suitability of that advice to the members who transferred into a private pension. The FCA has released a number of articles in which it has criticised advisors and recommended members who transferred their pensions to complain to the FOS, even if they have been happy with the advice that they've received. To date, the FCA has informed 45 firms to carry out a past business review. Of those 45, 17 have entered insolvency as they've been unable to afford the costs of the review. The FCA estimates that approximately £12 million in compensation has been paid to BSPS members so far. 
that was a really helpful introduction there, Andrew. And perhaps just to build on that a bit more, we should start with the National Audit Office report released in mid-March and before the Consumer Redress Scheme consultation. It's probably a useful place to start because it is effectively the BSPS scheme in facts and figures. So starting off, what does it say about complaints and claims that have been made by BSPS members to both FOS and the Financial Services Compensation Scheme? Well, for those unfamiliar, FOS resolves complaints between financial advisors and their customers, who are typically, but not always, uh, individuals. The FOS will typically only be able to consider a complaint after the complainant has first complained to the financial advisor. And there is a limit on the level of compensation that the complainant can receive. For BSPS members, this is typically going to be in the region of £160,000, as the complaints are about acts which took place before the 1st of April 2019, but referred to the FOS after this date. However, for any complaints referred after the 1st of April 2022, as you mentioned earlier on, this has now increased the cap to £170,000. The Financial Services Compensation Scheme, or the FSCS, is a safety net for consumers who seek redress for unsuitable advice when their financial advisor has entered into insolvency and will step in to pay the loss because the insolvent firm is no longer able to do so. However, the FCS needs to consider that the advisor would otherwise have to have been required to pay redress before it can make payment. The FSCS can pay up to £50,000 for firms who entered into insolvency before the 1st of April 2019 and £85,000 for firms who have entered insolvency after this time. So to date, the FOS has received approximately 800 complaints. Of these complaints, 324 have been resolved whilst the remaining 481 claims are still being processed. The FOS has upheld 71% of all BSPS complaints, including a 98% uphold rate for BSPS cases related specifically to unsuitable advice. The FSCS has received more than 1,250 claims. The FSCS has resolved 708 complaints, while 545 are still being processed. There is a significant shortfall in the compensation to consumers. The FSCS notes that consumers should have been owed £55.3 million, but the total compensation they have paid out is £37.3 million, resulting in a shortfall of £18 million, which is due to the FSCS cap, as we've touched on already. The FSCS has estimated that 95% of the advice provided to BSPS members was unsuitable. Notwithstanding the incredibly high uphold rates, to date only 25%, so that's approximately 2,000 out of the 8,000, of the members who transferred have complained to either the FOS or the FSCS. So you mentioned earlier, Andrew, about the fact that the FCA has taken action against 45 firms, including past business reviews. Um, the NEO report also gives us a little bit of a sneak peek into what else the FCA has been up to in terms of regulatory action. Can you just touch upon that for listeners? Absolutely. The NAO is quite critical of the SCA's historic involvement, and it's keen to emphasize that prevention would have been markedly better than cure it is now attempting to seek. It notes that in 2017, the FCA had a very limited insight into the DB transfer market, 
and in particular what was happen happening with BSPS. The FCA had no data on the number of BSPS transfers requests and was seemingly unaware of the level of interest from BSPS members to transfer into a private pension. At the time, only five out of the estimated 369 advice firms met the size for regular engagement with the FCA. The FCA started to take action from around November 2017, when it diverted a number of staff to work on the BSPS matters. It started communicating with firms to remind them of their regulatory expectations and arranged seminars with 151 advisors in January 2018, before writing to all pension transfer advisors to remind them of their responsibilities. In December 2017, the FCA started to communicate with BSPS members directly. However, by January 2018, 2,054 members had already completed their transfers into a private pension. The NAO notes that the FCA has issued fines totaling £1.3 million to date and has 30 more enforcement investigations ongoing. The result has led to at least 44 firms voluntarily withdrawing from the DB market altogether. The NAO also notes that the FCA has made changes to its internal processes in response to BSPS, as well as banning contingency charges for transfer advice. So as you say, Andrew, the NAO was critical of the FCA's approach when it came to BSPS. And so perhaps looking at this cynically, the FCA is perhaps trying to put things right via the Consumer Redress Scheme and the Section 404. This is the only the second time the FCA has used its powers under Section 404 against the entire financial services industry, the first and only other time being Arch Crew. So can you just set out for readers what a Section 404 consumer redress exercise is and what the FCA has to do before it can institute one? Absolutely. So the redress exercise will require firms to carry out a review of all of its past advice for the affected area. In this case, BSPS transfers, as long as they're falling within the population defined by the FCA. The FCA will prescribe how the firms carry out their investigations and determine whether unsuitable advice has been provided, and if it has, to make sure that necessary redress is paid to the consumers. But before it can start a redress scheme, the FCA first needs to be satisfied that it can meet the following three tests. And they are that, one, there's been a widespread or regular failure by relevant firms to comply with requirements applicable to carrying out an activity. Secondly, as a result, consumers have suffered or may suffer loss or damage in respect of which if they brought legal proceedings. And finally, it's desirable to make rules for the purposes of securing that redress is made to consumers in respect of that failure. Now, the FCA has spent considerable time and resources carrying out investigations into regulated firms' BSPS advice and has concluded that the majority of the advice was not suitable. Based on its reviews, the FCA estimates that approximately 46% of recommended transfers were unsuitable, which is a much lower rate than at the FOS. The FCA has compared this to the estimated level of unsuitable cases for other DB transfers, which it also considers to be very high risk, which it places at around 17%. So from its reviews, the FCA is satisfied that consumers would more likely than not be entitled to compensation as a result of the advice and feels that it is desirable for this to happen. 
So the consultation exercise from the FCA does look at some other options outside a industry-wide consumer redress scheme. So what were those other options that the consultation looked at? And what different outcomes does the FCA anticipate from those different options? Well, the FCA has considered five different options, including its recommendation for the redress scheme. So the first option would see the FCA continuing to encourage customers to complain to the FOS and working closely with the FSCS to encourage customers to make complaints to them as well. So far, the FCA has identified 45 firms who collectively advised 2,500 customers and required them to carry out a past business review. Of these, 17 have entered insolvency. Two have completed the past business review and work is continuing with the remaining 26. However, as this current option required members to opt in, there has been a shortfall between the members who were advised and those who actually wish to complain. The second option was for an enhanced supervisory action on a firm-by-firm basis. So this would include carrying out additional past business reviews with firms. The FCA estimates that there are another 16 firms who pose the highest risk in terms of volume to consumers, but estimates that only an additional 600 customers would receive redress with this option. Option three is enhanced communications. So this is cheaper than a redress exercise, and the FCA does recognize that this would generate more complaints. However, despite increased communications to date, with the FCA effectively encouraging complaints against advisors, significant levels of consumers have still not made a complaint. And the FCA is concerned that this would not be sufficient to adequately deal with the widespread issues it perceives. The fourth option is the redress exercise with an opt-in provision. So this would see consumers having to opt in to be eligible for the redress exercise. Now, the FCA is concerned that by requiring members to opt in, the take-up will still not be high enough. It's concerned that members may have misplaced loyalty, as it says, to their advisors, and or they may not respond in time. Albeit, the difference in the number receiving redress is said to be around about 200, the difference between 1,200 and 1,400. And finally, we come to the FCA's preferred choice. This is the redress exercise with the automatic opt-in for all affected members, but it does provide them with the option to opt out if they desire. The FCA considers that when taken in the whole, this will be the most beneficial option as it will affect the most amount of members and offer the most amount of redress for those affected. So now we get to the section 404 itself. It is at the consultation stage at this point, so it's important to emphasise it's not in a final form yet. But what does it, first of all, propose as the population? So who is in and who is out of this exercise, Andrew? Well, the FCA estimates that the scheme will apply to approximately 343 firms. But let's start with who will not be covered by the scheme. So it won't cover anyone who's already accepted redress in full and final settlement of a complaint. Also, customers of firms who have fully completed a case review under an FCA-initiated past business review, which involves a skilled person, and who've communicated that result to the consumer as long as they've provided them with FOS rights as well. Anyone who's referred their complaint to the FOS during the relevant period. If a complainant has already complained, to a firm but has not yet complained to the FOS, they would still be eligible for the redress scheme though. 
anyone who was given advice outside of the relevant period will also not be included. Now, the relevant period is from the 26th of May 2016 until the 29th of March 2018. The FCA has also chosen to exclude insistent clients. However, firms will still need to make sure that these clients had been correctly classed as insistent and write to them to let them know that they have been excluded from the review exercise because of their insistent status. The firm will also need to provide them with FOS rights at the point of communicating this information in case the consumer wants to complain further. Finally, if a firm has gone insolvent, in which case the FSCS will pick up these complaints. The FCA has some ambitious projections for the redress scheme. It estimates that 35% of consumers will receive redress. £31.2 million will be paid directly from advisors, while the FSCS will pay £20.6 million, with £19.4 million to be paid by insurers under professional indemnity insurance policies. 89% of firms will be able to complete the scheme without becoming insolvent, and 90% of the cases will be completed within the time periods set by the rules. Now, the normal time limit to make a complaint to the FOS for allegedly unsuitable advice is six years from the date of the act complained of, or within three years from the date a consumer ought reasonably to have become aware of that complaint if it's longer than the six years. However, the clock will stop on the limitation period from the time the redress scheme comes into force, meaning that consumers will not be time barred for referring their complaint to the FOS if they became out of time during the redress process. For the minority of consumers who were advised to transfer in 2016, they do risk being out of time before the redress scheme starts. And so the FCA has recommended that they make a complaint within the six years from their advice to ensure that they do not miss out on their chance to complain. So having identified the population that's in scope for the purposes of the redress scheme, what is the FCA proposing in terms of the process to be adopted by firms who are caught by this and have to implement it? Well, advisors will first be required to identify all customers who transferred out of BSPS after receiving a personal rec recommendation to transfer in the relevant period. They will also need to identify all cases within the scope of the population and all BSPS transfer advice excluded, taking into account the definition of the population from the FCA. The firms will need to report their results directly to the FCA. Now, after the initial checks have been completed, firms will be required to write to all BSPS members identified as either being in or outside the scope of the redress scheme. If a consumer is considered outside of the scope of the scheme, the advisor will need to tell them why, and also tell them that they can complain to the FOS within six months if they disagree that they are outside of the scope. Firms will also be required to communicate the relevant time bars so that consumers will know if they are going to run out of time. If a consumer falls within the scheme, they will be given the option of opting out of the redress. If a consumer does opt out, they will still be able to make a complaint to the firm at a later date, assuming that the relevant time limits have not expired. Now, once the advisor has identified the relevant members of the redress scheme, they'll use a special Excel spreadsheet called the BSPS DBAT to assess suitability. Now, this BSPS DBAT 
will include a number of questions which are designed to draw out common examples of unsuitable advice for the advisor to consider. This debat will produce an answer which suggests whether the advice was likely to be suitable based on the answers provided. The advisor will also be able to provide a reason as to why they have selected a particular answer. And after considering their responses, the advisor should be in a position to determine whether the advice was suitable against the DBAT's findings. Now, if the firm considers that the advice was suitable, the firm will facilitate a referral to the FOS via the FCA. This will involve the advisor providing the details of the member to the FCA, who will contact the member directly and encourage them to refer their claim to the FOS. When assessing the suitability of the advice, assessors may find that they do not have sufficient information to determine whether the advice was suitable. This is known as a material information gap. Now, where there is a material information gap, firms should stop the assessment and take steps to gather the information to resolve this gap. If it's not possible to reach a decision on suitability because of the material information gap, they will need to tell the consumer that they have been unable to make a decision and provide them with FOS rights. Now, assuming that advice is deemed unsuitable, the advisor will calculate the redress which is owed. Advisors will need to contact the consumer and request information in order to do this. Or if there is no response or insufficient information to undertake this redress assessment, the advisor will inform the consumer that they are unable to continue and provide them with their FOS rights. If the calculation is carried out, and it reveals that redress is owed, the advisor will need to offer this to the consumer who will receive payment within 28 days of accepting it. The consumer may choose not to accept the redress, but if they do, they can still complain to the FOS. If the redress calculation concludes that no redress is owed, the advisor will inform the consumer and again provide them with their FOS rights. If an advisor is unable to pay the award, they will become insolvent, leaving the FSCS to pick up the bill. Now, the FSCS will need to assess the claims using the methodology set out in the redress scheme. Otherwise, the advisor will need to pay the client directly, most likely with the assistance from their PII policy. So, Andrew, thank you for taking us through this, the population for the scheme together with the process to be adopted under the current draft consultation. So what are the deadlines for responses to both the consultation uh, for firms and their insurers. Where do you think this is all now going for both firms and their insurers? Well, the FCA is currently reviewing its guidance uh, for firms on how they calculate the redress for unsuitable DB pension transfers and expects to consult further on this in July 2022. The FCA currently considers that any redress payment should be paid to consumers as a lump sum and has suggested that this is going to be the same in the redress exercise. The FCA suggests that the redress calculation will estimate the value of the benefits a member would have received had they not transferred out of their DB scheme. However, with BSPS, the FCA recognises that they would also need to establish what the consumer would have done if they had received suitable advice, i.e. would they have moved to the PPF or would they have moved to BSPS2 instead? And they would then need to use this scenario to compare the benefits that they have at the moment. The FCA is considering whether it would be possible to develop a calculator, which could be used by firms to determine how much a consumer has potentially lost out on. The FCA estimates that the scheme will come into force in around about early 2023, and it is expected that relevant consumers will receive redress no later than early 2024. Now, the deadline to respond to the 
high-level proposals regarding the redress calculation needed to be need to be provided by the 12th of May, while the deadline to respond to all other questions in the consultation are due for the 30th of June. Thank you, Andrew. So we wait to see what happens next with the redress scheme, and no doubt the final consultation when it comes in will feature on the podcast. So now we turn to Shauna and the High Court decision in McLean and Thornhill. So before turning to the decision of the High Court, Shauna, can you give us an outline of the facts of the case and specifically what Andrew Thornhill QC's role was and who he was instructed by? Yes. So the claim relates to tax advice, which was given by a prominent tax advisor called Mr. Andrew Thornhill QC. He's very well known in the industry as being a leading tax authority. The tax advice that he gave related to a film finance tax avoidance scheme. Investors in that scheme were told that as a result of their investment, they would be entitled to tax relief against their income or capital gains. Now, Mr. Thornhill was retained by the promoters of the tax scheme, who were called Scots, and he was instructed to provide advice to Scots concerning the tax consequences of the scheme and the merits of the scheme successfully achieving the relevant tax reliefs. It is important to note that Mr. Thornhill was not retained by the investors of the schemes and did not provide them with any advice. Mr. Thornhill provided three written legal opinions in the period between 2003 and 2004, and those opinions were supportive of the tax scheme. In a subsequent letter, he also confirmed that there was nothing inconsistent in the investment memorandum which was the document which set out the nature of the scheme with his written opinions. He agreed to be named in the investment memorandum as the tax advisor to the promoters, and he also allowed his written opinions to be made available to potential investors. The scheme was later challenged by HMRC, which was then called the Inland Revenue, and as a result, the investors settled underpaid tax bills, which had accrued quite significant amounts of interest. The investors brought a claim against Mr Thornhill, alleging that he owed them a duty of care in respect of the advice that he provided. Part of the investors' arguments were that by consenting to his advice being made available to the investors, he had assumed a duty to those investors and they'd relied on his advice. Had Mr Thornhill not produced the opinion in the terms he did, the investors alleged that they would not have invested. As you say, Shauna, Mr Thornhill provided an opinion in support of the tax scheme. So the first question the court looked at was whether he owed a duty to the investors of the scheme who, as you say, were not his clients. So what factors did the court look at and what did it decide on whether or not a duty of care was owed? So to cut to the chase, the court found that Mr Thornhill didn't owe a duty of care to the investors. And this is despite the fact that he agreed to his written opinions being shared with them and the opinions were endorsed in the materials for the scheme, such as within the investment memorandum. In coming to that decision, Justice Zaccarelli applied the reasoning in the 2018 case of Enram and Steele. He considered that two questions needed to be answered to determine whether Mr Thornhill owed a duty of care to the investors. The first question was, was it reasonable for the investors to have relied on Mr Thornhill's advice? And secondly, should Mr Thornhill have reasonably anticipated that the investors would rely on his advice? In considering these two points, the court considered the following factors, the nature of the relationship between the investors and Mr Thornhill, the circumstances in which the advice was given, how the communication was made, whether any other advisors were involved, and whether he had the opportunity to use a disclaimer. In summary, the court found that Mr Thornhill 
had only been retained by the promoters of the scheme, Scots, and not the investors. And in any event, the role of the promoters was to sell the scheme to investors, therefore limiting any duty he might have had to those investors. It was also found that the investors were specifically warned in the pre-contractual documentation that they would need to take their own independent financial advice and they couldn't proceed without warranting that they had done so. It was therefore reasonable for Mr Thornhill to consider that the investors would have relied on their own advice rather than solely his legal opinion. The investors did raise an argument that, as the leading tax authority in the country, their financial advisors would, and did, rely on Mr Thornhill's advice. This argument was, however, rejected, and the court held that no reasonable advisor should have done so. The court also found that given the commercial nature of the scheme, the large amounts of money being invested, the sophisticated nature of the investors and their ability to pay for financial advice, there couldn't be an assumption of responsibility on Mr Thornhill's part. Put simply, the fact that Mr Thornhill allowed the investors to access his legal opinions or provide a disclaimer in respect to those opinions wasn't enough to give rise to a duty of care. Thank you, Shauna. So as you say, Mr Thornhill was found not to owe a duty of care. And as I read the decision, the Kai Court relied quite a lot on the fact that it was said in all the documentation that the investors would take their own advice, coupled with the fact they were quite sophisticated individuals as well. Um, But the High Court went on to consider the other issues in the case um, and whether in particular Mr Thornhill had breached his duty of care, had he owed one to the investors. And there were a couple of issues here. First of all, whether the opinion he gave was one a reasonable, competent barrister could have given. So in particular, whether he could have said the scheme could and would achieve the tax benefits, which depended upon a number of statutory tests. And secondly, whether there was in any event a breach of a duty for a failure to give a specific warning that there was a significant risk that one or all of those relevant statutory tests would be failed. And so the promised tax benefits would simply not be available. So taking the first point first, the claimant's case that Mr. Thornhill failed to discharge his duty to act as a reasonably competent barrister with respect to the opinion that he gave, what did the High Court decide there? The court found that even if Mr. Thornhill owed a duty of care to the investors, he didn't breach that duty. And instead, he provided advice that a reasonably competent tax barrister would have provided at the time. To conclude that the scheme was viable and the investors would be entitled to tax relief, Mr Thornhill had to consider the following statutory tests, whether the sponsor was trading, on a commercial basis, and with a view to profit. Investors claim that Mr Thornhill had erred in his advice regarding the trading status of the sponsor. Mr Thornhill based his advice on the leading authority at the time, Ensign Tankers and Stokes, and took the view that distributing a film is inherently a trading activity. However, the investors claimed that Mr Thornhill should instead have carried out a multifactorial approach, considering all elements of the transaction, and in particular, whether badges of trade were present. It was argued that no reasonably competent barrister could have concluded that the sponsor was trading, and or commercially, and or with a view to profit. The court held that based on the state of the authorities in 2002 to 2004, the ensign approach was one which a reasonably competent tax QC could have taken. So the court decided that Mr Fornhill had not breached his duty to act as a reasonably competent tax QC. So on the second issue, the so-called duty to warn, what did the court decide when it came to the, the second way in which the claimants put their case? 
The investors also claimed that Mr Thornhill had a duty to warn them of the risks of the scheme, and he failed to do so. And this was, again, rejected by the court. The court found that the presence of a duty depends entirely on the facts and the level of knowledge and sophistication of the investors. In this instance, the investors were high net worth, sophisticated individuals who'd retained their own financial advisors. Mr. Thornhill was not instructed to provide them with advice. And in any event, he only had very basic knowledge concerning the characteristics of the investors. And therefore he couldn't possibly make this assessment. It therefore must be found that no duty existed. However, if it was wrong and there was a duty to warn, the judge set out what that warning should have looked like. First, it would not require identification of each possible argument against the conclusion Mr Thornhill had reached, but it would have required some acknowledgement that, as no two cases are the same, no existing authority could be said to cover the circumstance of the case exactly, and it was possible that others could reach a different view. It would have required some acknowledgement of the risk that the current law on the meaning of trading commercially was based on the challenges so far made to film partnership schemes by HMRC, that there was a risk HMRC would investigate the schemes, and that it was possible that a change in HMRC's approach to challenging such schemes might lead to a different conclusion being reached by the court. So having looked at whether or not a duty was owed and then whether or not that duty had been breached, the judgment then helpfully goes on to look at causation limitation. And perhaps the most interesting point were the arguments around limitation. First of all, section 14B in the 15-year long stop, and then section 14A, the three-year latent damage provision. For both sections, the court looked first to when the cause of action accrued to start time running, which is quite interesting in relation to tax cases when the tax scheme may start a number of years before the revenue starts looking at it. So what did the court decide here, Shauna? So the court found that time started to run for the purposes of primary limitation from the date that the investors invested in the scheme. In reaching that conclusion, the court dismissed the argument that the damage was contingent and dependent on whether HMRC challenged the schemes. The damage was actual as the investors entered a transaction which did not, as a matter of law, give an entitlement to the tax benefits Mr Thornhill advised would be available. The timing of an HMRC challenge was not relevant as those provisions went to the timing of payment obligations and not about whether there exists a liability to pay tax in the first place. So having decided when the cause of action accrued, the the court first looked at section 14B, the 15-year long stop, um, and found that the question was whether or not the act or omission had taken place outside that 15 years, having come to a conclusion of when the cause of action accrued. Here, the claimants interestingly tried to rely on some later letters from Mr Thornhill within the 15 years to say that he failed to correct the earlier advice, but those arguments were rejected by the court on the basis that, first of all, there was no evidence that the later letter was relied upon or shown to the claimants slash investors. And secondly, it's established legal principle that continuing failure to correct earlier advice does not actually constitute a fresh cause of action. So the claimants were unable when it came to the first tax scheme and the first advice to actually rely upon, to actually bring their claim in time because it was outside the 15-year long stop. So that hopefully gives people a little bit of an insight into 14B. But what, Sean, did the court say about Section 14A, latent damage? Um, What did it say on that and what conclusion did it reach? The investors also attempted to rely on Section 14A of the Limitation Act, which for the large part was successful. This was on the basis that investors had not acquired knowledge for the purposes of bringing an action for damages until a date within three years of issuing proceedings. Here, Mr Thornhill relied on a letter from the promoters to the investors, which notified them of the HMRC inquiry. 
as evidence of time starting to run for the purposes of Section 14A. However, the court rejected this argument on the basis that the letter from the promoters would not have caused a reasonable investor to think that something had gone wrong, because there was always a possibility that an inquiry might be raised. So this case is particularly interesting to us as a team, because we often see claims against advisors involving tax schemes, which often bring up issues around whether an advisor promoted the scheme or recommended it as opposed to introduced it. And here I'd refer listeners to our earlier podcast from January, where we talked about the Knights Townsend case and the difference between introducing and recommending. And also we see issues in relation to advisors feeling comfortable recommending a scheme or suggesting it to a client because it is supported by an eminent QC. So looking at this case, Sean, where do you think it leaves advisors facing this type of case where the advisor relies upon that tax opinion when it puts a scheme to its clients? In respect of obtaining advice generally, Justice Zaccaroli stated that it is a nonsense to suggest that because he, Mr Thornhill, was the best, there would be no point in a potential investor getting their own advice. This perhaps gives an insight into his views concerning advisors relying upon such an opinion. The investors also raised the possibility that their own financial advisors may have been led to believe that they need not ask for the underlying documents because of the confidence in which Mr Thornhill expressed his opinion. The court again dismissed this argument. It was said that an advisor asked by a potential investor for their advice could not reasonably advise that the scheme would achieve the tax benefits because that was Mr Thornhill's opinion, however strongly Mr Thornhill held that opinion. Advisors should therefore act with caution when relaying the advice of another professional and consider the content of the advice objectively. Thank you, Shauna, for taking us through quite a long judgment for those who've had an opportunity to read it, which brings up a whole host of different issues for advisors in the tax scheme space. Um, thank you again to, to you and to Andrew for taking the time to take us through these huge developments in the financial services and wider market. And thank you as well to listeners for sticking with us through quite a bumper podcast today. RPC Radio. We hope you will join us again next month when we will be discussing the month's hot topics in the financial services sector. And please do click to subscribe to receive the monthly podcast as soon as it is available. Be sure to also check out other RPC publications at rpc.co.uk forward slash perspectives. Thank you to our guests today, as well as those behind the scenes at RPC who make this podcast possible.